be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Exodus chapter 20. The text is printed on the next page of the bulletin also. Look at the sixth commandment this morning, um, which is, you shall not murder, which um, it really has a lot more to do than just with um, the premeditated killing of one another. Uh, you trace uh, uh, the language used here uh, about murder, you trace themes through the scriptures, you see what Jesus had to say about this commandment and uh, what the apostles have to say in the New Testament, and uh, you realize it, it, it goes far beyond um, just you know, forbidding someone to take the life of another person out of, out of cold blood, right? Um, it, it sparks a lot of debates. It touches on topics um, like corporal punishment, because in the, in the Old Testament law, um, most of the time, if you killed someone, uh, retribution meant that you were going to be killed. And uh, so corporal punishment is uh, prescribed in the Old Testament. And so it sparks debates about that. Uh, do, we, do we do that in our country or in our state? It sparks debates about war. What does it mean? I mean, is there general killing forbidden or, you know, is it legitimate when it's nations that do it? Or um, it sparks debates about suicide, um, whether that might be the unforgivable sin. Um, so you know it's not. Uh, don't want to leave you hanging on that. It's, um, but about uh, debates about euthanasia and self-defense and all kinds of things that uh, that come from this word. Really, the, the commandment is. Um, it's just one word. It's, uh, it's murder with a not in, you know, kind of a prefix. So not murder. Um, uh, and, and all kinds of things arise from it. So just to let you know where we're going this morning, um, one of those debates that, uh, that our culture is engaged in, that the church is engaged in, um, in our culture, um, I'm going to talk quite a bit about abortion this morning. Um, that's, uh, I know that that's a topic that is um, going to make some of you uncomfortable, maybe make some of you wish that you didn't show up this particular morning, um, but I promise I'm going to try to make all of you uncomfortable, <laughs> all right, because um, after all, the, uh, the first use of God's law, the first function of it in our lives is to point out our sin, and we've all got problems with that, right? So... Um, Hopefully, that won't be where we end up. The law is meant to drive us to God's grace, meant to drive us to our Savior. So hopefully the gospel of Christ will bind up our wounds uh, as we uh, look at this text this morning, and, and hopefully the gospel will shape how we view this commandment and how we can keep it. So let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we do need your help as we consider your word, as we are confronted by your law. Our instinct is to place ourselves beyond the reach of your law or to reject the validity of your law, and we pray that you would help us to just sit and listen to your word, and um, we pray that you would help us by your grace to believe your love for us in a way that makes it okay to examine ourselves, examine our own hearts as we consider your word. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. 
God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, yeah, once again, we're not, we're not going to try to address all the ramifications of this particular law. Um, I really, really should have planned on multiple weeks per commandment uh, in this series, but I think it's good to have a brief overview and just touch on things. Um, but you do need to know that the Bible understands this commandment. Um, it's not just something I'm making up. It's not just something that our tradition uh, thinks. It's, the Bible understands this commandment to refer to much more than just malicious pre- premeditated murder. And our legal system actually uh, reflects an understanding of this uh, in the fact that we, we see differing degrees of um, homicide, if you will the taking of another person's life. We see different degrees of it, uh, murder, um, maybe even different degrees within that category of murder. Then you've got, you know, voluntary manslaughter, which is, um, you know, murder is usually premeditated. Voluntary manslaughter is like, you meant to do it, but it wasn't premeditated. You just lost control in a rage and you killed somebody. Or there's involuntary manslaughter, which is basically you were doing something that was probably going to end up killing somebody, reckless endangerment of some sort. Um, drunk driving, maybe. Um, negligent homicide, which is um, you weren't careful enough to protect the life of the people who are around you. And um, the Bible talks about that a little bit, but our legal system understands these different degrees, and we have different degrees of penalty for these things, and the Bible understands that too. There, there are slightly differing degrees of penalty for people who um, uh, are responsible for taking the life of another person. <clears throat> Almost all of them have to do with death. You, if you've taken the life of another person in any way, pretty much your life is on the line. Uh, if it was really just carelessness and, and um, that was your fault, then you can run to a city of refuge and be safe. If you don't, you're going to be killed. Um, And so, anyway, we we see those differing degrees. We see the differing penalties. But all of these things in the Bible, murder, manslaughter, uh, carelessness, negligent, homicide, all of these things are covered by the Hebrew word retzak, which is translated here murder. It's, it's, uh, It's narrower than just to kill someone, but it's much broader than just to than to kill them out of uh, cold blood, premeditated. And, um, and so here are a couple of places where the scriptures speak of it. Deuteronomy 19, if anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to a city of refuge and live. So you're responsible for the death of your neighbor if you didn't make sure that the head of your axe was affixed very carefully to that handle of wood so that when you go out with your neighbor, you're not going to unintentionally kill him, right? So this is directly applicable to our mercy ministry of cutting wood together, right? Be careful with the chainsaws, guys, because otherwise you're guilty, right? Um, So carelessness, it's killing unintentionally, Um, Deuteronomy 22, when you build a new house, and a common thing, uh, a common feature of the, the houses in this culture were that um, they'd have a flat roof and you'd go up there and that would be your patio, right? That's where people would hang out 
on a nice day. It's up on the roof of the house. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, a low wall around the edge of it, so that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. All right, so it's your responsibility not... It's your responsibility to be careful for the life of other people, right? That's what the scriptures say. So in order not to be guilty of blood, in order not to deserve justice for the death of another person, it was their fault that they walked off the, the roof of your house, but it was, it's your fault that you didn't put a wall there, right? Um, the commandment requires us to be careful to preserve human life. And... <clears throat> You see that expressed in the Westminster Larger Catechism, which I thought was just so good. We had to put it in the beginning um, of the bulletin there for uh, your enjoyment. Um, You can go home and reflect on this later, but, I mean, it's pretty incredible. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment. See, when the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, asks, what about this commandment, the Fifth Commandment? What about the Sixth Commandment? What about the Seventh Commandment? It asks, what are the duties required, and then what are the sins forbidden? Right? So you get a lot of elaboration when you're going through here. But this is what we're supposed to believe about the duties required in the Sixth Commandment. They're all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, so joy is wrapped up in this commandment, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, maybe it's physique, exercise, I think, sleep, labor, and recreations by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous, speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. And um, if you read that in some kind of official version, every single one of those words has a link to a scripture in it where it talks about this is, this is the duty that's required of us in, in the sixth commandment. So you might imagine then that a lot of sermons can arise from this commandment, and um, unfortunately we're not going to cover all of it, but um, in a minute we're going to focus in on that last part that's talked about in the Westminster, which is um, protecting and defending the innocent as a duty of ours in keeping the the commandment. First, I want to address the way that Jesus talks about this commandment and how he exposes the heart motives that are behind either breaking it or keeping it. Um, and that's, that's what Jesus cares about. When he talks about the law, he always peels it back to what's going on inside of our hearts and showing us that that's the place that um, is broken, that's the place that needs healing, uh, that's where we need forgiveness and transformation. So he says in Matthew 5, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Which is true, that's, that's the scripture, that's what the scripture says. Now, the, the people that he was talking to had misinterpreted that um, and limited it narrowly, really, to outward forms of murder. Um, but he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. <clears throat> so Jesus is saying that it's, it's not just the action of killing someone else that breaks the sixth commandment. It's the heart attitude. It's what's going on inside of us. Right? Um, there's hatred. There's anger. Uh, resentment. Bitterness. Uh, despising of others. Disdaining of others. In short, enmity in our hearts. Enmity. In our hearts, it doesn't have to find outward expression. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, you don't have to do something that would visibly you know, land you in jail to be breaking this commandment. And right there you realize then we all stand condemned. <laughs> because we hate our neighbors for being of a different political party than we are. We resent our coworkers who got the promotion that we wanted, that we felt we deserved. We were bitter towards old boyfriends or old girlfriends who manipulated us or dumped us or hurt us. Um, we despise those who make us look bad by comparison. We disdain people who are of different uh, races or genders or socioeconomic status or whatever. We blow up in anger at our kids for uh, making us look bad in public or inconveniencing us, breaking our stuff. Um, which, by the way, when you discipline from a, a place of anger, uh, that's called abuse, and that is in the same vein as murder. Right? That's in the same spectrum as uh, this commandment about murder. So this boils down, all these things in our hearts boil down to enmity. Enmity, relational disintegration that is, uh, is based on selfishness. Right? That's kind of the root of it. It's based on selfishness. I'm right. I'm deserving. I'm valuable. I'm better. I'm the center of the universe. And you should treat me that way. Um, <clears throat> my ideas, my peace, my comfort, my advancement, my glory come first. And when someone threatens that, then I respond with murder in my heart. And <clears throat> Dallas Willard says of those who are... Um, who are ultimately self-seeking in their motives, that their whole life is bent toward um, getting their own. <clears throat> he says that they want what they want when they want it. And that is the ultimate fact about them. If they do not get it, they become angry and depressed and are a danger to themselves and others. So um, just this week, I was debating whether to tell you this, Please don't call the police on me. Um, just this week, at the end of a long day, all I wanted to do was get the kids in bed and watch a show and try to get to bed early. You know, it's all I wanted. And when I didn't get my way, I just got fuming mad, right? Uh, and lashed out in anger toward my wife, who I felt was ultimately responsible for me not getting my way that night. And that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And as such, it is a perfect example of the insanity of this sin in our hearts, right? We, we work against the life and the joy of other people for our own petty, selfish ends, our own pursuits. 
Ultimately, if there were no restraint placed on us, if, if society had no effect on our hearts, if, if God's grace weren't working on us all the time, ultimately, um, each one of us would destroy or enslave every other human being on this planet for our own whims. That's how it is. We think we are the center of the universe. <clears throat> and when we do that, um, when we work against the life of others, the joy of others, for our own ends, we're not just putting ourselves before them, before other people. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. Right? And God is the one who delights in life because he created it. God is the Lord of life, and God made us in our own image, which in his own image, which is why we're not to kill each other, right? He says in Genesis chapter 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So in his justice, God requires the death of a murderer because the murderer has killed one who's been made in God's image. We desperately want to be at the center of the universe, and God is the ultimate challenger for that uh, in our lives, to that desire in our lives. And it is his image that is seen in other people that we treat with contempt, that we hate. Right. So now, again, the, the keeping of this commandment isn't just avoiding that. It's not just avoiding murder or hatred or bitterness or resentment, the keeping of this commandment is love. It's loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's loving even our enemies, as Jesus taught. And Jesus, uh, he gives the great commandment. Right? He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when he does that, he's drawing from Leviticus 19, which I'm going to read just a little bit from. <clears throat> he says, uh, uh, God says in Leviticus 19, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that commandment was given in the context of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not bear a grudge. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, <clears throat> Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And then, um, which we read in our uh, New Testament reading from 1 John 3, the Apostle John writes, This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, that the world is Cain and you are Abel. Right? Don't be surprised. We know that we've passed out of life into death because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, so whoever hates, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother 
is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we are supposed to love others as we love ourselves as a fulfillment of the commandment, you shall not murder. So we're supposed to take great care with the life of others. We're supposed to hope the best for them and to work to provide the best for them, to pursue their connection to God ultimately. We're supposed to selflessly protect and nourish and promote their lives to work for their joyful, abundant life, both on eternity, uh, both on earth and in eternity. We're supposed to do that. Um, but then in our country, over a million unborn children die every year, largely so that we can maintain an uninterrupted lifestyle, largely. Four million children are born, and one million children are killed. Of course, this is um, only a problem if abortion is murder, right? The taking of another human life that has not been authorized by God. Um, So I'm not going to go into all the philosophy or the science of the debate uh, over when human life begins, when personhood begins, when um, human rights begin. If you really want to debate that, we can get coffee, I think, but I'm just going to talk about and focus on the biblical view because this is one of those rare instances, I think, in our culture where there's major moral disagreement between our culture and the Bible. We don't see eye to eye on this. So, honestly, the Bible does not explicitly state that uh, human personhood begins at conception and therefore abortion is, is murder doesn't come right out and just say that. Uh, But it's implicit and it's sensible in light of many scriptures. David in Psalm 139 is praying to God and he says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He goes on, you intimately knew me as you were crafting me before I was born. Which just implies the personhood of David before he was born. And in Psalm 51, David says, uh, in something I think it's maybe a little bit confusing, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We usually think that means his mother was the one that sinned at his conception, but this is a psalm about his own sin, his own guilt. So when he was conceived, he was a sinner. And only human beings are sinners, right? So at conception, then, implicit is the fact that he was a human being. He was a sinner. He was guilty of original sin, which technically is Adam's sin, right? But he's a sinner from conception, David is saying. Luke chapter 1, unborn John the Baptist leaped inside of his mother Elizabeth's womb upon hearing the voice of Mary who bore unborn Jesus, right? Unborn children responding to the gospel. Um, Exodus 21, and this is a a big one, one which actually some of our uh, laws, some some state laws, maybe not ours, but some states have laws about this. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies, 
shall be put to death. But if you did not lie and wait for him, but, let, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. It's one of those cities of refuge. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So that's just to say, if you're guilty of striking somebody uh, premeditated, you're going to die instantly. If it was an accident, you didn't mean to do it, God orchestrated that providentially and it, it just happened, you didn't mean it, you're going to die unless you flee to a city of refuge, right? So there's some lenience there in the law for, for someone who unintentionally strikes another man. But when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, so the children are okay, then the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm to the child, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's emphatic, right? This child is your equal. And even if you didn't mean to kill that child, you don't get the city of refuge. You don't get lenience on that one. It's life for life. So, <clears throat> at the very least, maybe you're not convinced that an unborn child from conception is uh, a human person and that we're supposed to protect and defend that life. Maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you're just unsure right, whether um, human personhood begins at conception. But at the very least, then you should give the benefit of the doubt. Right? At the very least, you should um, give the benefit of the doubt. John Frame talks about this. He gives kind of an imaginary hypothetical situation where he goes out with his friend <clears throat> for a hunting trip. Right? And at some point, they're walking through the forest and they get separated. So he doesn't know where his friend is. And then he sees some rustling in the bushes up there. Right? And um, he says, do you shoot first and ask questions later? You're not sure where your friend is. You're not sure whether that might be him in the bushes or if it's some animal that you want to kill. <laughs> You're not sure. Do you shoot? The same thing applies if you're not sure about whether this is human life or not. You should probably err on the side of caution. Uh, but we're self-seeking people. <clears throat> right? We're self-seeking people. Eve Schaefer, who uh, the other quote at the beginning of the bulletin is from, says, the philosophy of living with an underlying motive of doing everything for one's own personal peace and comfort rapidly colors everything that might formerly have come under the headings of right and wrong. This new way of thinking adds entirely new shades, often blurring brush strokes of paint that wipe out the existence of standards or cast them into a shadow that pushes them out of sight. If one's peace, comfort, way of life, convenience, reputation, opportunities, job, happiness, or even ease is threatened, just abort it. 
and now we have arguably the greatest ongoing tragedy in the history of the world. Um, we murder our own children, more than 40 million of them each year worldwide. Can you think of anything worse than that? Can you think of anything more insane than that? The Bible everywhere commands us to care for the poor and for the needy, to deliver the needy, to give justice to the weak. And um, <clears throat> John Frame, he, he, he's got a couple paragraphs I need to read. This is uh, Arguably, the unborn are the weakest, poorest, most helpless people that there are. They have no political or economic strength, not even voices to plead their own cause. They're under vicious attack today by the dominant forces of society. The educational establishment, the media, and the government, including the courts, which should be demanding justice, even the most influential ethical thought of modern society stands against them. And the most terrible part of it is that these children are under attack from their own mothers. God's plan is that the parents of the child should be his defenders. Our tradition regards a mother's love for her child as something very deep, indeed fierce in its defense of the child's life. The mother is the child's last line of defense. If the mother forsakes her child, who will help? Who indeed? Psalm 27 gives the answer. <clears throat> my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Isaiah speaks in horror about the possibility that a mother might forget her child, but God says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God is the helper of the poor, the husband of the widow, the father of the fatherless. He cares about those for whom the world has no care. And he calls his people to be his agents. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The unborn represent humanity in its most helpless form under merciless attack. They have, therefore, a unique claim upon the mercy of God's people. <clears throat> so as the church, we've got to do something about this. Right? Um, we've got to do something about this. We've got to <clears throat> love and protect life. <clears throat> especially the life of the utterly helpless. And what is our usual response as the church to this information? It's actually hatred and contempt of those who support abortions. Right. It's murder in our hearts. <clears throat> those evil pro-choice people, who would do such a thing? I can't believe a mother who would sacrifice her own baby for her own comfort. And if that is your response, you've just broken the sixth commandment. You've failed to love your neighbor as yourself. You've failed to see yourself in your enemy. You're the same as the abortionist. You've set yourself against the life of your neighbor. And it, this is driven not just by self-seeking, but by self-righteousness. Self-righteousness leads to murder quicker than any other heart motive. Because it was not the pleasure seekers, it was not the comfort seekers who killed Jesus. It was the self-righteous religious people who had him murdered because he exposed their sin, because he threatened their righteousness. And that is the most valuable thing to self-seekers like us, self-righteousness. 
we're supposed to be the kind of community that has no condescension toward anybody, no condemnation for anybody. Only grace and help to offer, but we're the kind of people who condemn Jesus to death, who preferred to see the release of a murderer, Barabbas, to the release of the innocent one. But the gospel says that Jesus went to that death willingly. Jesus came, and when we deserved his hatred, when we deserved death, he let himself be hated by us, by self-seekers and self-righteous people. He let himself be murdered. And he died in our place, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, to forgive us all of our unrighteousness, our law-breaking, to forgive our selfishness and hatred and murder. He loved us. Even though we sought to make ourselves the center of the universe, and that meant trying to remove God from that place, even killing him when he came in the flesh, he loved us. We were his enemies, and he loved us, and he gave his life for us. To continue in that quote from 1 John 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the gospel tells us of Jesus' sacrifice, his supreme obedience to the sixth commandment, to love us as he loved himself. He gave his life for us. And so the gospel changes us and makes us the kind of people who reflect the image of our Savior. We're being recreated in God's image, the image of his Son. And the gospel changes us to make us the kind of people who harbor no condemnation for others, not even our enemies, not even the people that we think are doing the worst things in the world. The gospel changes us and makes us the kind of people who are willing to give our resources and our lives for love so that the life of others would flourish and be protected. It's not an instant, instant transformation, but over time, more and more, God's grace enables us to see ourselves in our enemies, to see that we're the same kind of person, and to long for them to connect to God's forgiveness and reconciliation with God, to long for them to be transformed and to be brought to glory even as we long for that for ourselves. God's grace enables us to pursue reconciliation with others. That's how Jesus addresses this in Matthew 5 when he exposes the heart sins behind murder. He goes on to say, you need to be reconciled. There needs to be forgiveness. You need to work toward fixing those relationships in your life. right? And God's grace enables us to do that. Even though enmity exists, even though it is humbling to do so, we need to be reconciled. We need to be people of reconciliation. And God's grace compels us to join with the church of all ages in following after God's heart for the oppressed and for the helpless. We really can be changed. We can become willing to forfeit our life, our peace, our comfort, our way of life, our convenience, reputation, opportunities, job, happiness, to forfeit these things in order to defend the unborn and to defend others who are weak 
or defenseless, rather than to make their lives forfeit to our comfort. If you're interested in learning how to love not only the unborn, but uh, the parents of, especially the mothers of the unborn who are really struggling with the circumstances in their lives that are making them even think about abortion, um, there are several ways for you to get involved. There's some uh, pamphlets, information on how to volunteer, information about uh, birthright, which is kind of an interdenominational thing that's uh, local here. It's, it's everywhere, but uh, there's a local branch here. Birthright, Pregnancy Resource Center, Mother and Child in Portland. Um, get involved with these things. Get, uh, get involved with um, Bethany Christian Services, um, which is adoption. Most of us probably feel like we have enough children. <laughs> um, maybe we need to think about adopting others. We're to be people who delight in and promote the flourishing of life. And the gospel makes that change in us. The gospel of God's grace to us in Christ, the love of Christ given for us freely. So put your faith in him and be changed into his likeness. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do stand convicted by your word in so many ways. Uh, we've, we've all broken this commandment because all of us are selfish. And um, we thank you for the costly forgiveness, the way that Christ lived a perfectly selfless life, even to the point of death, giving himself for us. We, it's hard for us to make sense of that truth. It's hard for us to live by it, but we pray that you would drive it deeper into our hearts, that you would make us to live by your love for us that should be then um, replicated by us in our relationships, that, that we would become the kind of people who lay down our lives for others. We pray that you would make that happen through your spirit and through your word, by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.